advisory is in effect through 9 o'clock tonight and most likely will be extended through the weekend. The dome of high pressure breaks down and moves east on Sunday for our area, bringing a break to the unrelenting dangerous heat. Next week, we should see more seasonable temperatures and a chance of storms, according to forecasters, starting on Monday. Support this local newscast and this station now by going to kpft.org and becoming a member. Thanks for tuning in. For KPFT News, I'm Elise Bench. This is Hank Rubichek, producer of So What's Your Story on KPFT Houston, 90.1 on the dial, Houston's community station. Growing up in America on KPFT Pacifica Radio. Oh, there, there's the song right there, right here. We were he- we were hearing the dance mix, and I'm telling you, Rico, I was dancing, man. So, uh, uh, Bob Sanborn here from Children at Risk on uh, Growing Up in America with us today, Gretchen Himsel. Gretchen, how you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Yeah, nice to have you. Ana Tuscareño is also in the studio, and uh, uh, we're going to be talking with her just a bit. We have a great show today, Gretchen. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. We have some great guests. Yeah, yeah. Who's up first? Our first person, well, we're, of course, we're going to do the thumbs up, thumbs down, so we can take a nice temperature for our social issues. Yes. And then after that, we're going to hear from Anna, mm-hmm. who is... Uh, a student here in Houston. We'll hear more about that. And then after that, we're going to hear from some great doctors. Philip Schnars, who's out uh, at UT. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, population health and LGBTQ. We're also going to be talking to Sarah Beret, who's the CEO out in San Antonio of Pre-K-4SA. And then Steve Kelder, Dr. Steve Kelder, who is uh, the Department of Epidemiology at the School of Public Health at UT. Talking about vaping. Yeah, that's a that's as a parent, that is a real issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's good. Uh, so welcome to Growing Up in America uh, here on KPFT. This is a production of Children at Risk, the voice of children here in Texas, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas's youth. Bob Sanborn, along with Gretchen Hemsel and Ana Tiscadeno here in the studio as well. And I uh, want to thank you guys for joining us. Uh, let's Let's go straight to thumbs up, thumbs down. So we have a little bit of intro music. Is that? Oh, there it is. I'll take that. There you go. And and is this not your favorite song, Gretchen? It is my favorite song. But honestly, this is my favorite segment because my thumbs are warmed up and ready to go up or down. Ready to go. Okay, Mm -hmm. so what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about TV in the kids' room. And I feel like that's a little bit of an antiquated term, but perhaps we could just say screens. Screen time. Yeah, screen time, unmonitored screen time. I think that's the whole point, which is like, what are kids watching and is it in their room? So, uh, So the idea is thumbs up or thumbs down, screen time in the bedroom, watching TV in the bedroom, whether that be on the laptop, a television, or the iPad. As a parent, what did you do? What did you say to this, Gretchen, when when your kids said, Mom, I'm just going to watch in the bedroom? <laughs> that was a hard no at the Himsel Fans household. Really? Absolutely. And we don't have a TV in our room either because yeah. we believe that... Uh, beds are for sleeping yeah possibly jumping on before after bath and before bed but other than that no screens um partly because we like to watch what they're watching to know what's going into their brains but also like just to like take a break like there should Mm -hmm. be a physical space where you're not on a screen but you know 
Kids love to watch in the bedroom, though, don't they? They do. It's like their little space. It's their space. I'm going to watch what I want, where I want. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But books are also good for that, especially in the bedroom. Um, I know a lot of kids and parents and adults fall asleep to television shows. Yeah. Um, But I would still, if that is the case, I... In our family, we would do like stories mm. on uh, at the time CDs, but now I think there's other formats for that. But there's other ways to like get that falling asleep thing without a screen. Anna, how about yourself? I mean, I know that uh, uh, you grew up. Did you were you able to watch TV in your room? We definitely had very like regulated TV time. We oh, only wow. had a TV in our living room, um, and then. It was very like, if you ate with your hands at the dinner table, less TV for you. Um, And we didn't get phones. Still pretty early, sixth grade, but compared to the rest of my school, it was pretty early. I feel like it's definitely an easy, like, addiction to be able to fall into, though, because now that, like, I'm living on my own this summer, I definitely just am watching TV up until bedtime. And I know it's not good for, like, the amount of time you're able to fall asleep in, but... It's just so easy to keep watching. So I know you becoming a mom is a long time away, right? I mean, we're talking decades. So when that happens, I mean, if you were to give it, because you work at Children's Risk, you're going to give advice to someone. And so uh, mom and dad say, we're thinking about just letting our kid watch TV in the bedroom. What would your response be? I think there's a certain age where you can do that, especially in the future, decades away when I have children. Um, There'll probably be way more access to screens. Yeah. Um, but I think just making sure you set like good boundaries with your kid, like it is okay to watch TV, but also like, oh, there's other fun things to do like in real life mm-hmm. where we could watch TV together like Gretchen was saying. Um, I think just in moderation is good instead of always being super controlling or too lax. So thumbs up or thumbs down to TV in the bedroom, screen time in the bedroom. I would say thumbs down. Thumbs down. You're th- and and Gretchen, you're definitely thumbs down. I'm two you're thumbs like down. a big thumbs down. So this is interesting uh, because, as you mentioned, Gretchen, uh, you know the the days when a television would be in the you know that may still happen, but it's not happening as much. And we were pretty clear about that in our house. Like, no, it's not going to happen. And the idea that sitting around a TV, you know, is sort of a family event is is even better than, right? Because as parents, you're controlled to what you want because you're watching what the kids want to watch. So we were definitely a big thumbs down to stuff in the bedroom. But we do live, to, to Anna's point, we live in a different age, right, when people are bringing their iPads. And sometimes parents can't control. So I think making those rules early... You know, so that, hey, we all follow these rules. And I think the idea of not doing it in the bedroom, you know, no TikTok in the bedroom, we watch it downstairs. You know, I think that's a hard rule to enforce, but it definitely needs to be enforced. So that's three big thumbs downs. Yeah. Any positive to this at all? Um, I mean, I think there is a element to giving that as a um, something that you grow into for responsibility that you've earned. I think that's a nice Thing for a kid to be able to earn. I think there is a sense of privacy, especially like maybe you have one girl in a house full of boys or, you know, one boy in a house full of girls. They want to do that. So I think there, I think like Anna said, it was being lax versus too strict. Wow. Three thumbs, three thumbs down. Very good. Dime como hacemos. And that's your intro music, Anna. So Anna Tiscadeno is here. She's a, an intern from Rice University working at Children's Risk for the summer, a junior. Um, and tell us a little bit about uh, your growing up, Anna. What did you, you know, we're, t- we're growing up in America here. What was it like growing up for you? Um, so I was born in San Jose, so I spent about five years living with my grandma. While San Jose, I, California? Yes, yeah. correct. Um, I grew up with my grandma and a bunch of other my co- other cousins of mine. Um, so that was really nice, getting to spend time with family. But then we moved to Houston when I was about six oh, or seven. Oh, yeah. So um, I there was like this sharp disconnect from my family at that point. But I really enjoyed growing up in two big cities, being able to be around people that looked like me. Um, I went to high school in a very white neighborhood, so being able to have the childhood with like a bunch of other Latinos and like mixed race kids was really nice. And where did you go to high school in Houston? Um, I went to high school in Dallas, Highland Park High School. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very good in Texas. 
Anna's our bridge amongst cultures, so she often gives us good insight about what it's like to go to a um, high-performing high, high school, and then also as an experience with um, a family of uh, Latino culture um, and how she bridges that. So she's a gr- we love having Anna at, uh, as internship this year. And when you think about your future and what you're learning at Children at Risk and this whole idea of children's rights and, and taking care of every single one of our kids, what to you is sort of the biggest lesson that you're getting, Anna? Um, I feel like just being able to connect with everyone appropriately and like on a level that they are like willing and like ready to be a part of Um, some of the biggest lessons I've learned here at Children at Risk and just in my college experiences working with people instead of like at people like just throwing things at them throwing Mm. solutions at them so I think be able to understand everyone's culture and everyone's background and where they're coming from and being able to meet them where they are to get the best solutions I love that Uh, would to extend that conversation a little bit further, would you say that that would lead to be a benefit to in-person classes and in-person, like working in-person at some point? Like, Yeah, I definitely agree. I've been telling so many people about like having the hybrid for children at risk this summer, being able to like meet everyone and meet the other interns. You get to like bond and be able like feel more comfortable doing your work, which I think is super nice. And same with in school, like getting to bond with your teachers and other students and like working together. I love this idea, though, of yours that you're saying, you know, working with people rather than working at them or or giving them solutions, because we live in a policy world, right, in Texas, in many ways, the United States, where it's like, I have a good idea, and we're going to do that, as opposed to working with people and introducing good ideas, and what do they think, and how do we sort of manipulate it and sort of make it work for us? Uh, what's an example for you where you've seen that sort of at work at children at risk or working with kids here in the state of Texas? Because that seems to be a sort of a key challenge. Um, I think a great, this is less specific, but um, I was talking with Linda Corchado with the Children's Immigration Network at Children at Risk. And she was talking about like building coalitions and being able to talk to a bunch of different people and like health coalitions, like talking with doctors and talking with patients and getting to get like real life experiences as opposed to just the policy side of it. Um, yeah, and bringing different perspectives, like having people from different, like she used to be a lawyer and having people who used to, like with different degrees and different um, job experiences, I think is a really great way to get that. I'm going to ask you a difficult question, Anna, because when we look at the state of Texas, we see that um, as a whole, this state, if everyone voted, everyone who is eligible to vote voted, we'd have a very different government. And when we look at comparisons to other states, uh, we see that younger people are beginning to vote in larger numbers in other states. But the two groups in Texas that seem not to be voting are Latinos and young people. Uh, what is the barrier? In, and granted, we put up every barrier possible, it seems like, in Texas, right? But uh, what is, what, in the minds of young Latinos, I'm going to have you speak for all young Latinos now, what, what, is, the, what is the barrier? And, I, and I'm sure you vote, but I'm just talking about sort of this, this whole group in Texas that doesn't seem to be voting. Yeah, I feel like a lot of it, especially for young people, not just young Latinos, is just that you don't feel like it's affecting you necessarily as much. Like maybe you're still dependent on your parents, you're still in college, like the things you're voting for aren't necessarily like affecting you the next day, like after the results come out, I think is a big thing. And then just for like Latino culture, I think a lot of it is like, they may have some ideas or they may have this like, like ideal for Texas or for the United States, but it feels like there's so many other voices where it's like, if I'm already being if no one's like listening to me enough already, why is my one vote going to count against like millions of others, I think is a big thing. Um, so yeah, just a, like a disconnect between like what you think needs to be changed and what is actually going to happen once you're able to like make the vote. When we look at other states, we see that uh, there have been things that have happened that have made young people begin to say, I'm going to vote. And uh and here in Texas, we've seen sort of the government bully transgender kids. We've seen them sort of no action when there's school shootings. Uh, we see uh, people, you know, white legislators controlling the health of every young woman in the state. Are those things that you think they seem to be working in other states, but I haven't seen the motion start in Texas. Do you think it's, it's going to start soon um, in terms of going to vote? People are going to start voting? I think... 
hopefully i feel like it's happened so many times where a bunch of people are getting jaded like a lot of my friends a lot of college classmates it's just like if it's get, like it keeps happening like even if we do go out to vote like um or continue to be advocates for these things like it's still going to keep like hitting yeah. us no matter what we do so but hopefully it gets to the point where like some catalyst or some switch turns on where it's like if we all go at once it's it'll be better than doing nothing at all Gretchen, you seem to have your pulse on high school kids. And do you, do you see that high school kids are sort of becoming a little bit more outraged and ready to do something or not necessarily? No, I think they're outraged, but like they're stuck. They don't know how to make it uh, change yeah. and fix. And they, and they get very discouraged um, because there's, you know, they can barely get a candidate that they support elected. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So there's not even any, any hope. Um, and so I was just trying to think about like ways that we could make people feel that they're vote and voice is effective obviously my brain goes to distributed voting but like i think that's going to be a little bit longer to to put together i don't know maybe yeah maybe getting more attention to smaller races like jps and um school boards school boards even like library boards in some communities are elected and that can really give encouragement and positivity to the young voters yeah it's uh anna but do you see amongst your classmates any sort of movement uh, there or that they're starting to do more Um, I think definitely, like, from my hometown where my high school is, school board elections is definitely a big thing. Um, Just because being in Dallas, there's definitely people that are running now that are more far right or have more, like, ideas about critical race being taught in classrooms, things like that. So I think when there's such an extreme, that's when, like, a lot of my friends and I, like, we will drive home and we'll fly home from college to vote um, in those school board elections. yeah, so I feel like being able to have something, like I said before, that's like directly affecting you as selfish as that is, it's like, if this is my school that's going to have this happen to it, like I'm going to vote against it. And sometimes it's the candidate themselves, right? We saw a lot of people register to vote when Beto was running, right, for senator against uh, Ted Cruz. And it was very obvious. And uh, people around the country were sort of excited for Texas, right? And I think when he didn't win, it sort of took the air out of a lot of people's tires when it comes to this thing. Yeah, they were so. really discouraged. Yeah, sort of an interesting thing. Ana Tiscareño is an intern with Children at Risk, a student at Rice University. Ana, you want to stick around for the whole show and maybe comment here and there? Sure, sounds that, good. That would be good. You're listening to Growing Up in America. Take a walk, look at what has gone before. There's no way you will ever win. Come on, take me on. Come on, take me on. Next up, Philip Schnars is with us. Dr. Schnars is an associate professor at the Department of Population Health, and he's director of the Texas Pride and Health Collaborative. He's out at UT Austin. Philip, how you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hey, give us a little bit of an idea of some of the stuff that you're studying right now that sort of excites you and that really has uh, an impact on the state here in Texas. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, one of the things that I in particular look at is the way that early life adversity, so broadly defined as things like childhood abuse or childhood Mm. neglect or, you know, household challenges that can be experienced have an impact on adult health and functioning. So the ways in which these experiences or exposures to the experience um, can shape our health over the life course. And in particular, the thing that um, I'm most interested in right now is understanding um, unique uh, forms of ACEs or adverse childhood experiences yeah. that LGBTQ plus people um, are exposed to and sort of what are the implications for that in, in adulthood as well. So how young are these um, in your specific field of study? Like how, how young is this happening? You know, it's like, oh, you don't have to worry about that until they're 10 or 11 or they become like sexually mature for these ACEs to be a thing. Or is it happening even earlier and younger? You know, that's a, that's a really great, great question. And in fact, we just um, submitted a grant application to look at, consider that question and really understand, like, what is the age of first exposure to these specific or unique forms of childhood adversity that LGBTQ folks experience? Because uh, we don't we don't really know. I, I You know, the assumption, I think, right now is that it would only occur after someone sort of has a sense that they're different from other people in terms of their sexual or gender identity, um, that you would begin to be exposed to these things because you have an awareness that somehow you're different or you're being treated differently or there's potential for you to be treated differently um, because you have this awareness about yourself. You know, Philip, I was talking to a buddy of mine recently. We were talking about 
uh, LGBTQ teens and how, you know, a couple of years ago, we all thought, you know, this was all going to be sort of normalized, right? And there wouldn't be as much bullying and there wouldn't be as much ostracizing. But in Texas, we've sort of taken a turn here. How is that affecting some of our, uh, you know, LGBTQ teens in our state? You know, there was just a, a, I was just scrolling through social media this morning, and there was a report that came out um, on some research looking at this particular thing and thinking about or showing evidence for the ways in which what we refer to as like maybe structural stigma or, or laws and policies or even just the threat of laws and policies that are anti-LGBTQ and the impact that it has on mental health of young people. And, you know, there's, there's really clear evidence that shows that when you have these policies that um, uh, are anti-LGBTQ+, that it has a real detrimental impact on the mental health and well-being of, of, of young people in general, so whether they're teenagers or preteens or, or, or whatever. That's a good point to bring up about the mental health of our young folks. But isn't it true that sometimes um, that stressor can express itself in unusual ways? Like they might not say, I'm depressed about X, but maybe in young boys it comes out as anger or um, in other people it might come out as um, like withdrawal? Yeah, I mean, I think that... um and that's with anybody, right? So anytime someone is exposed to stressors or feeling like they're being othered or excluded or don't feel belonging, regardless of whether they're LGBTQ plus or not, it can, you know, it can result in any kind of um, behaviors or expression of behavior that, you know, people wouldn't see as depression or anxiety and that it can show up in a lot of different ways um, for sure. What should parents do, Professor Schnars, when uh, um, you know they're conf- you know they, they they figure out you know or their child tells them you know hey you know I'm uh, I may be gay I'm you know I I I'm you know I'm I think I'm different than other kids what what's the job of a parent because I think there are a lot of parents in Texas that get a lot of mixed messages on this and don't know how to react and you talk to some parents and they want to do this in the most loving way cuz these are their kids and 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 yet it may be against what they they're being taught in a church or against their political beliefs uh what what's the role of parent in this of a parent in in this sort of situation you know, I, that's a great question, again. And it can be a really difficult thing. Yeah. First, I want to say it can be a really difficult thing for a parent whose child comes out to them because um, it does. it's not only about what they're being told, but there's also lots of expectations that come along with your children, right? Like you expect their lives to look a certain way, and, and when that alters, it can be a very difficult thing for, for a parent to accept. But I think ultimately, and again, this goes back to it's not an LGBTQ plus issue here. It's just mm. this idea that no matter what your child tells you about who they are, accepting that. Because we know that, like, as a human species, belongingness and connection to other people is sort of this primal need that we have to have met. And so when you reject someone for who they are, it has this sort of fundamental uh, impact where, you know, you feel like you're being kicked out of, of, of this group and sort of biologically, there's this like really important drive to feel connected because it's how we survived as people, right? We had to have a group, we had to feel connected. And when you reject somebody, it ends up like you're, you're, it feels like your life is being threatened because you're being thrown out of the group. And while that might, that might not be a life-threatening situation now, it, it potentially yeah. could be. I mean, if you're homeless when you're you know, 14 years old because your parents kicked you out. But there's this really just fundamental thing about accepting young people when they say they are this or that or they want to be this, you know, just accepting that and invalidating that experience for them in that moment because that critical, that's so critical and making them feel like they have belonging in their family or belonging in their school or belonging in their community. And by, you know, by, by not giving that to young people, you're really putting them in a, in a lot of danger in terms of, you know, their health outcomes then yeah. and as well as their outcomes as adults as well. Yeah. Anna, you have a question? Yeah, I just wanted to ask, going off of that, how do parents and, like, adult figures in these children's lives, like doctors or teachers, how do they create that safe space before these kids are even coming up to them with these issues? So there's less – I know there's a lot of fear, like, coming out to parents or, like, telling parents you're being bullied maybe – just because you feel embarrassed or ashamed that um, this is happening to you, how should these um, like adult and guardian figures make a safe space where kids feel comfortable, like 
expressing their feelings and not that they're going to get ousted or threatened, like you were saying. Yeah, you know, that's it's a little bit beyond <laughs> what I know about in terms of parenting, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but, you know, I think that's that's sort of the relationship that they have with their child. It, it, it's often independent just of, you know, the, the young person feeling comfortable and coming out. And it's sort of how you create that relationship, I would assume, you know, the parent-child relationship and the parent-child communication and about them feeling like they can disclose who they are to their parents. And I think more broadly than that, right, like it's about, you know, allowing spaces to provide affirming sort of support in the sense that there's visibility of LGBTQ symbols, there's visibility of LGBTQ plus people, because the more visibility of these things and the more that, you know, it's seen as something that is, one, deserving of this attention, but two, that there's other people that exist in the world that are like these young people who have fear about coming out because they may be kicked out of their homes or they fear that they would be cut off from their friends or their schools or whatever. And so I think bigger than just the sort of connection with the parent, there's also this piece about how communities and schools need to be affirming of, of individuals' identities and make those safe places where young people can feel safe and, and see that visibility. I think that, you know, there's a lot of challenges right now with visibility of LGBTQ plus people and, and, and the, the impact that that's going to have on young people. I think we, we underestimate what impact that's going to have on young people as we try to sort of, you know, limit the visibility of, of LGBTQ plus people um, across the country. Do, do you, th I have so many questions, uh, Philip, on this, you know, it's uh, because it's so important to, to so many of our kids in Texas and more of our kids than a lot of people who run our government think it is right. I, and I, and I think about some of the talking points that I often hear, like books in our libraries uh, or, you know, pediatricians convincing a child of one thing or another, uh, or, you know, because I watch a certain TV show or movie, these are things that are going to lead my child to be uh, uh, part of the LGBTQ plus population. What do you say, you know, as an expert in this area and sort of being the director of the Texas Pride and Health Collaborative, what do you say when you hear this uh, some of the, these sort of odd ideas about why a child would be, decide to say that they are gay. I think there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation yeah. that's put out about LGBTQ plus folks at large, right? Um, and, you know, one of the things that I sort of always push back on is, you know, we don't question ever when someone says that they're heterosexual, why are you heterosexual, mm. right? And I think that when you start to sort of problematize the question, right, so why are we not asking people why they're heterosexual, it gets into these bigger sort of spaces around we normalize this, identity, this, this idea that only heterosexuality exists. Like we, that's sort of this societal belief that we have. And we know that that's not true. And we know that it, a book isn't going to make someone heterosexual or not heterosexual, right? Right. Can you point to a book that made you decide that you were heterosexual? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, um, I don't know, Gretchen. I mean, I think this is a sort of, it, it's, it, you and I are often faced with the facts and yet people don't seem to grasp the facts sometimes in some of this stuff, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I saw a meme the other day that said, you know, reading a book about, you know, amphibians doesn't make kids want to be a frog. So why would reading a book about, you know, gay characters make them gay? Oh, it's, it just, it, it drives me crazy, but, um, uh, but it's the world we live in. And it's like, we're always trying to figure out what is the opposite, you know, what's the talking point to this? Because if you point to science, it also seems like people don't want to listen to science anymore. And, and I wonder, you know, as we point to the aces right now, uh, Philip, you and I know that, that there's so much good science on this, but I wonder when the point is going to come when people just say, well, kids just need to toughen up, you know? And so it's, uh, uh, it's an interesting thing. Philip Schnars is a professor with the Department of Population Health and at UT Austin. Philip, thanks so much for being on the program today. Thank you all so much. All right. You're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT Pacifica Radio. You flip the script for the hell of it. Addicted to betrayal, but you're relevant. You're terrified to look down. 
Cause if you dare, you see the glare Of everyone you burn just to get there It's coming back around And I keep my side of the street Alright, on the line with us is uh, Layla Mazzali She's the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation And it's time for Data of the Day The number today, Gretchen, is zero what do you zero. think? Zero. zero. Well, of course, that makes me think of donuts, which we had earlier. So that's like my... zero good health in donuts. <laughs> right, 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 right. But don't they say that as a scoreboard? Like it's donuts. <laughs> if you're, if it's like zero, zero. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, I think zero days of school left. Zero days of school now. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know. Do you have a good guess? Is zero even a number? I feel like. Well, there that's... you go. That's a whole another point that yeah. we might raise with Layla. <laughs> Anna, do you have a guess on what the zero represents today? I have no clue. No clue. You have zero clues. Zero, zero clues. clue. All right, Layla, lay it on us. What is zero? Well, zero is a data of the day first. I don't think we've ever had zero as mm. our number mm-hmm. uh, or lack of number, to Gretchen's point. Um, but zero is the amount of conclusive research that supports that trans women and girl athletes have a competitive advantage over their cisgender peers. Interesting, right? So... So this is another one of these talking points that we hear, right, is that obviously there's an advantage for someone who was, uh, you know, who is in transition uh, or and obviously as their kids, they're not going to be in transition. So they're just sort of, uh, um, you know, I, I guess I'm at a loss for the, some of the language here. But what is the, you know, why is there no advantage, uh, Layla? I mean, what's the deal there? Well, I mean, I think if you're talking about, like, hormone treatment therapy, I think that, um, you know, trans girls, trans athletes, trans people will be at different journeys with that um, no matter what. But, I mean, I think when we're talking about having a competitive advantage, I mean, look, uh, athletic associations like the NCAA or the International Olympic Committee have been allowing trans athletes to compete with the sports teams that align with their gender identities for two decades Um, And we don't see trans women dominating, Um, you know, women, cisgender or trans come with all different builds, all different Mm -hmm. shapes and sizes. Um, And I think, you know, at the end of the day, like we're not seeing, you know, the 1% of girls that identify as trans dominating in every athletic category. I think even the most recent kind of case study example that had this moral panic going on. Um, you know, the trans girl who beat another girl took second place. So she was still beaten by another girl mm-hmm. um, who happened to be cis. So I think we're just not seeing the kind of, I don't know, alarming dominion of trans girls that conservative uh, takes would really yeah. have you believe. I think, you know, I think of middle school athletics. And if you go to any middle school boy or girl sports event there is such a wide variety of physical attributes growth has hit different kids at oh, different yeah. times yeah um and so honestly that always worried me when i would watch football games and like some of those like seventh graders are giant and some of the seventh grade you know boys are just the size of fourth graders just because that's the way it works out so for a long time i've been thinking like isn't there a better way to do this like do it by like regardless of age do it by weight or, um, you know, other physical, like you do in boxing, you have all these different weight classes. Maybe we could do that um, and, less, and worry mm-hmm. less about what levels of hormones are in people and what uh, genitals they have and just go by, like, mm. what size. Like, a, like a, 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 for volleyball, 5'10 and under. <laughs> yeah. Right. Over 5'10. It, it, that brings up such a funny story in my mind. My daughter was on the swim team in high school, and whenever they would compete against this other high school, it would be men and women competing. Uh, but there was a guy who was like they called him the man child because he was a obviously a high school swimmer, but he looked like this he old shaving, guy. He, shave before you know, he had a he had a full beard, and so they called him the man child. Not that they didn't mind swimming with the man child, but I mean it was just this whole range. You're right. I mean kids who are seem very young. They're all the same age or about uh, and they seem very young or they seem uh, significantly older uh, I think Layla when I when when we talk about this this issue though uh, it's not something 
you know, you talk about 20 years of this. This seems to be something, though, that people have decided to legislate really just in the last couple of years. So we've been competing right. with trans youth for 20 years. But then in the last couple of years, people have become worried. And it's obviously it's a political point. It's not a real worry. Right. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the points is like, oh, well, you know, cis girls will be discouraged because they know they can't win. And I I mean, I think that's so silly, first of all, because the data doesn't back that up. Um, So we actually see that states who have trans inclusive sports policies have better, consistent and increased participation of girls um, in contrast to states that exclude trans youth from sports. So we know that's not true. Um, and then, you know, just secondly, inclusive policies are better for all children. Um, for trans children in particular, they diminish the risk of suicidal ideation or suicide, yeah. you know, mental health issues. And then, you know, for cisgender youth alike, they increase participation. So, I mean, the numbers just don't back up the kind of moral panic that has risen in the last couple of years. Anna, you have a final quick uh, question for Elaine. I was just going to say, but like what you were saying, not letting these trans girls compete, a lot of the times that's like other team, their friends and like teammates that are on the team. And you're seeing one of like someone you've practiced with every day or have been like growing up with not be able to compete alongside you when they're doing the exact same work that you're doing to get there. So I think that's just another point to letting these trans girls participate just because they didn't jump any hoops or do anything different to get to the exact same point that every single girl is doing to get there. And and we often forget that the point of high school and any sort of school athletics is the comp is just being allowed to compete. It's people aren't generally going on to win world championships from high school. And so when we say a certain group can't compete, you're just really eliminating the fun and the competition for a whole group. And so, uh, Oh, Dr. Bob, you're so innocent to know, to think that high school competitions are fun. And that's the only point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am, aren't I? I'm so naive. So uh, Layla Masali, thank you very much, Layla. Good. This is good. I love that the date of the day being zero. And this is a great topic because it's uh, so timely. Thank you very, very much, Layla. Thanks, Al. All righty. You're listening to Growing Up in America, KPFT, Pacifica Radio. Right on the line with us is Dr. Sarah Bure. She's the CEO of Pre-K for SA. Sarah, how you been doing? I'm great. How are you? Very good. Have you ever had Beyonce do your intro before? No, I haven't. There That's you go. Special. Yeah, no, you need to keep that up, right? From now on, whenever you enter the room, you want to have your staff play Beyonce for you. So. I'll put that on the list, absolutely. <laughs> Sarah, I know I'm going to be out in San Antonio pretty soon to, to visit with you, but we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Pre-K for SA because it's such a unique thing still, even though it's been around a couple of years. Uh, tell us about this this idea of how San Antonio decided, hey, we're going to have pre-K. And, and while the state now funds pre-K uh, for, for school districts and for kids in need, uh, there was a time when the state was not funding for full-day pre-K, and San Antonio said, we're going to take it. Right. So that was back in 2011. Uh, then our mayor at that time was Julian Castro, and he wanted to um, – find out how the city could invest local sales tax in the education pipeline to improve workforce development and to create a world-class workforce. And so he convened a group of really smart people led by uh, General Robles, who at the time was the CEO of USAA, and then Mm. Charles Budd, of course, of the HEB um, HEB stores. And they spent a year studying educational interventions. And as I like to say, because they're a group of really smart people, they landed on early childhood because all the research says that if you really want to change not just the education pipeline, but the workforce and the community, you need to invest early. And so that's how Pre-K for SA came to be. And is it working, Sarah? I mean, is it working in the way that you want it to work? And uh, what are the things that are good? What are the things that you still can change? Because obviously doing this for 10 years, you're going to have some ideas of what's working and what's not. 
Absolutely. So I think one of the brilliant parts about the architecture of pre-K for SA, which I can take absolutely no credit for, I didn't show up until 2016, is that it really, they looked at what the research says you need to make a comprehensive change in early childhood. So started with our four schools and, and uh, Julian Costas purported to have said, I want to know what the best is out there and I want these to be better than that. And so this was a way to increase access, but more importantly, quality of early learning because, quite frankly, we had, even though Texas has had half-day pre-K for a long time, we haven't had a, an investment in the quality end of it, and a lot of it's been, quite frankly, pretty mediocre. And what the research will tell you is that it has to be high quality in order to get the long-term benefits that we see uh, in the research and the potential that's there. So open up the four centers, and then, but it wasn't just about that. It was about um, awarding grants to other programs to help them improve quality as well and doing professional learning and engaging families. And I will tell you what we've learned a lot about over the last 10 years is where you can put money that makes the greatest difference um, and, and really honed in and refined the things that we will support and fund through the grants, but also pairing that with professional learning, because you've got to have the teachers are critical. You've got to have teachers and leaders who really understand mm. early learning in order to make it work. Yeah. Dr. Beret, I uh, heard you mention family engagement. And uh, as a parent that hangs around other parents that might not have the access to the research that we do, um, sometimes it can be difficult, not difficult, challenging to convince parents to send their kids to school so young. So how have you engaged those families to let them know it's okay for for three, four-year-olds to uh, be away from home when maybe they want to keep them home with the family or with grandma, um, or they're just worried about um, kids going to school so young? Right. So we've spent, we spend a lot of time talking with families. Um, for most of our families, this is their first entry into the formal schooling system. But we believe families are the first and most important teachers. So that's where it starts, really, is by acknowledging that families are a critical part of the education system and the pipeline and helping young children to get off to a great start, but then also making sure that families know they have options. So Pre-K for SA operates for uh, pre pre-K centers. We have 500 children in each of those centers. Not every family wants to send their child to a school like that, and that's okay. We say there are other options because we have other partners in child development centers, faith-based programs, even family home providers. Whatever works for the family and makes sense as long as it's quality. And that's one of the pieces that I so appreciate about the design of Pre-K for SA is that we're agnostic in where the, the, the early learning gets delivered. We just want it to be quality and we'll work with anyone who is interested in serving young children and making it work for families because Early learning has always been delivered in a mixed delivery system, and that's just the nature of it. It's what works for families, um, and so we want to support that and make sure that families understand what does it look like when I'm choosing a provider, whether it's in a home or, or whether it's in a child development center or a faith-based provider. What should I be looking for to make sure my child is getting the very best? I love that. I love that how you're um, honoring where the meeting families where they are and like helping them be informed to make good choices for their kids. Yeah, because let's face it, I mean, and it's primarily women are still making the choices around um, care and, and education of young children. And most of our families are um, dual working families like we and so there the way that people make choices, again, typically women, or they're like, can I get there? Is it convenient and get to my job? And can I get to my child if I need to get my, to my child in, you know, the, when the, if the child needs to be picked up during the day or after school or what have you? And so that means that we have to have high quality care available throughout the community in the places where women live and work. And that's really one of the pieces we're focused on is identifying where those child care deserts are, which we rely heavily on our, our friends at Children at Risk to help us identify that. So we know where in the community to really invest resources so there are options for families. Sarah, we, kn we know that across the state of Texas, 65% of our kids are coming from low-income families. And so mm -hmm. for those kids, right, pre-K is, is going to be practically essential. And I often say if, if there is a silver bullet in the fight against uh, childhood poverty, it's early education and high-quality pre-K, right? It's the, these are some of the best bang for your buck, right, that you could do. And so I often applaud San Antonio uh, when I speak across Texas in terms of doing this. 
But how did the pandemic impact? Now, now we have a whole group maybe of kids that for two years didn't get as much high quality pre-K. And this is all across Texas. How do you think that the pandemic is going to have an impact down the road for some of these kids? Yeah, it's, and we're, we're already seeing that because what we saw in our pre-K for SA centers were a couple of things. One, we saw children coming in with less developed gross motor skills. And in part, mm. the, the theory we have is that they just didn't have the chance to get out and, you know, play and run around and do all the things that they, you know, normally get to do in their youngest years. And so really having to focus on helping children to develop those skills. The other piece was around families in crisis. Um, yeah. Lots of our, you know, families experienced tremendous stress during the pandemic, and that shows in some of what the children are bringing to schools, and it has affected their social-emotional development. And so really making sure that we have the resources to help children um, recover from, from some of that and to continue to thrive. Now, the good news is about young children, as you know, is that their brains are developing so rapidly yeah. that there's an opportunity to really intervene and make sure that we can help children catch up if we get to them into those high-quality pre-K classrooms and help them to to really focus on the things that matter in terms of, you know, supporting their brain development. Um, But it is the, I I would say the social emotional learning piece and is the part that we're seeing is really needing some attending to just because of, you know, the limited options for, for interactions during the pandemic. The other piece is for children with special needs, children that are um, not developing in a typical way because they didn't have access to the early interventions that they would have had during regular time. So again, that's another place where we're really having to focus and think about how do we help children and families get those needs addressed now that things are open back up. Dr. Sarah Beret is the director of Pre-K 4SA out in San Antonio, a great program. And uh, thank you, Sarah, for the work that you and your team do. Uh, and thanks for being on the Growing Up in America program. My pleasure. All righty. You're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT Pacifica Radio. Back here on Growing Up in America, with us now is uh, Dr. Stephen Kelder. He is a professor out of the Department of Epidemiology at UT Health, the School of Public Health out in Austin. Steve, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Very, Thank you very. For being here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being with us. We had the Beatles do a little intro for you, Steve. Hey, Steve, tell us <laughs> a, little, a little bit about because that's just who you are, right? So uh, it is. It we, is. I, I know that you and I have talked about the the environment, and there's so many things that have an impact on kids. But I wanted to talk about vaping because you have some particular expertise in this. Uh, have we seen a decline in vaping with teens? Because, you know, a number of years ago, it seemed to be on this big increase. Uh, what are we seeing right now with vaping, Steve? Yeah, well, you know, before the, the pandemic, uh, the vaping rate was just rapidly increasing. And, you know, new technologies were coming forward. Juul, as an example. Puff yeah. Bar is another one. And those devices had a, a higher dose of nicotine than previous versions. And so we saw kids who were starting to experiment with them because they like the different flavors. And then before you know it, they become addicted. And then then now we have a, an addiction problem, not just a behavior problem. But when the pandemic hit, and because a lot of kids start using these devices uh, at school or at uh, you know community organizations where they're gathering together, it's very much a behavior where one kid vapes and then he passes it to another and says, here, try this. And that didn't happen when kids were staying at home. So, so we saw mm. the, the rates of uh, vaping go down wow. considerably. But now they're back up again. Bob. <laughs> and, you know, they're just, they're, they're just growing. Kids are out there and they're vaping again. And so it's, it's a concern. There's uh, uh, somewhere between uh, two and three million kids in middle and high school that are vaping regularly wow. today. 
And it's just spreading. And it's so hard to like see. Um, like they'll hide it in the sleeve of their sweatshirt and then like they go for, you know, they cough or like they're studying and just put their chin in their hands and they're doing it in school. You can't tell by looking or smelling if they're doing it. And then also teachers are kind of like limited on like, you know, decl- you know, empty your pockets or doing searches and stuff like that. So how do you, it's like, how do you stop it? How do you, A, stop it and regulate it in schools? And then B, <laughs> how do you tell them there's something wrong with it? Because kids 100% don't believe there's anything wrong or unhealthy about this. Those are big problems that we're trying to solve. You're right. And, you know, I, I think when, when we have an addictive substance, an addictive behavior, prevention should be a priority. And so that means we need to start teaching children about the harmful effects of, of vaping. Um, and that can happen in classroom programs. So, you know, as a matter of fact, there's a program called Catch My Breath, which is out there, a vaping prevention program that's uh, free to schools. Anyone can just grab it and go get it. There, there's other ones out there, too. And so training of teachers, training of parents, training of kids, like what's happening, what's happening in the brain. Then we switch uh, from prevention into treatment. And the kids who are addicted to nicotine, that, that, that's a real addiction, and it's, it's a serious one. And although it seems harmless, I'm just addicted, and I, I just can't stop. Eventually, that turns into a, a, a problem as they start using more and more frequently. And we don't have great solutions for smoking cessation, but there are some programs out there. Um, one that's put forth by the uh, Truth Initiative called This Is Quitting. But uh, schools are in a tough spot because kids are coming, they're vaping, they're getting caught, they get caught, and then what does a school do? They can suspend the kids, they can call the parents in for a, a, a conference. Um, some schools are expelling expelling children and sort of kicking the can down the road to another school setting. But, you know, if you treat it as a discipline problem, you're not really solving it with suspension. So it's an addiction problem. So it's a medical problem. So the kids need help. And so, you know, American Lung Association has a a program that schools can put on for for kids that during detention, uh, someone can come in and teach them the facts about vaping. And so it's it's a tough spot for schools to be in and, and for kids, especially ones who are addicted. Professor Kelder, one of the things that I I loved about as this started, right, was the idea that you were free, you felt free to to tweet about this and to sort of be, be part of Twitter wars with the like the big <laughs> vaping people, right, who were like Jewel and all those that were saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with this, and that you were quick to respond. D- did you see any benefit to that? I mean, obviously, I love people who stand up to people who are going to bully and try to misinform people. Did you see any benefit to to the Twitter wars and to people sort of paying attention to this stuff? Well, you know, that's sort of a sad part of my of my story, Bob, to be honest. <laughs> you know, back in 2014, 15, 16, I was assisting uh, CDC and the Surgeon General in writing a report on teen vaping and health. And so I would just tweet out facts as I discovered them, and I quickly realized there's a small army of people out there who were just annoying and would – and would be a very aggressive. Oh, wow. And so uh, I, I tried to answer them back, and yeah. I, I was, it was consuming too much of my time of what I was doing at work. And it's also a little bit emotionally upsetting to be yeah. uh, attacked yeah. verbally that way. And, you know, I, I think we do have an, uh, an anti-science thing that uh, potentially is funded by industry. I, I think a lot of these uh, folks, which are advocates for vaping, uh, end up being funded by tobacco companies, just like uh, it's happening with the uh, school nutrition and in other areas too. And so for me, it was not a positive thing, but uh, and I stepped off the sidelines, yeah. but I've just been reading reports that other scientists are doing that. And that's probably the, the wrong thing to do is to step off the sidelines and, and stop sending out, you know, valid, reliable, truthful information that we, we should all as, as scientists do more of that. Yeah. I know. I just don't pay attention to comments. Right. I just feel like you're right. It's sort of depressing, but I do, I am hearing more and more, you know, Peter Hotez being one of those guys who just keeps going after, you know, know. poor Peter. (laughs) I know, but uh, sorry for the dude. I know he's just, uh, he's just amazing. Anna, you have a question from the college point of view. I just hearing perspectives from both my mom and like knowing people at my school that vape. um, Do you think what's the future of like, once we get kids and like teenagers to stop vaping and like moving away from those addictions do you think since we went like kids smoking cigarettes to kids vaping and juuling now it's like do you think this is just like a problem that's going to continue or like this will be the last of it that's hard to say 
Um, you know, the FDA is slow to regulate things. They're still involved in what's called pre-market review of uh, new and vaping nicotine-containing products. And so I, I hope that uh, they're able, as they figure out their regulatory systems, to, to, to regulate this better. Um, and we see that happening in certain places. But, uh, you know, one thing to, to consider is that not only is nicotine addictive, but you can, you can vape THC. And so kids that mm. vape tobacco... Uh, or, or, or you know, nicotine, uh, have a device in their pocket that they can also vape THC. And we're seeing THC rates explode, too, in addition. And so, you know, will it go away? We, if you told me 30 years ago that uh, we would be down to 4 3 4% of tobacco use amongst kids, I would say, gee, that would be a public health giant success story. <laughs> I don't well, care what you wish happen. for. <laughs> Yeah. That did happen. It went yeah. down, and now a new product came in, and it's addicting another generation of kids. So we, yeah. we just have to be vigilant and keep at it. Keep at it. That's the that's the key thing. Um, let's go to our we, – we need these five uh, fun questions. We'll try to get a couple of these questions in okay. with you, Steve. Uh, what did you want to be growing up? <laughs> well, it wasn't a public health expert. I can tell you that. <laughs> Early on, I was interested in animals and uh, conservation, and I, I, you know, oh. if I had followed that path, I, I would probably be more into the climate change movement oh, yeah. um, than I am today. You might be running a zoo, Steve. Who knows, right? I could be running a zoo. Yeah. Steve. Well, if you walk into some high schools these days, you're you're, you're in a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Steve, question number two: Do you have a comfort movie or TV show or book? And if you do, what is it? Well, you know, during COVID, I did expand my TV watching. I'll have mm. to admit, the one I like a lot these days is uh, from Chicago, where I'm from. It's about a chef. It's called The Bear. Oh, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah, I've been watching that too. Yeah, yeah, I, I love The Bear because it includes food and drama and, and anxiety and mental health and stress and. And, That's what uh, you do all day. Don't you want to break from that? I, well, I, I'd like to see other people having that. It's not just me. You know, the stress parts of that show stress me out, though. I have to say, sometimes the yelling is like, uh, oh, come on, please. Uh, hey, what was your favorite food as a kid, Steve? I grew up on peanut butter, of all wow. things. I had a peanut butter sandwich in my lunch every single day for, wow. for many, many years. And I still love peanut butter. Wow. Gretchen, you have one more you for Steve? comfort food. Yeah, yeah. I do. Uh, who motivates you in your life? Getting on all the deep questions today. Uh, an individual would probably have to be my wife, Deanna, who's oh, the dean yeah. of our campus and uh, also a health researcher in nutrition and, and physical activity. And, and she and I have been partners in public health for almost 30 years now. And we reinforce each other in so many ways. Um and then we've got the kids that are a result of that partnership. So wow. we've got a lot of motivation. Well, Steve. I've had an in-home in focus group with children and health. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks for the work that you do out there at uh, uh, UT. And uh, uh, thanks for keeping up the hard work of fighting the good fights. Steve Kelder is with uh, School of Public Health in Austin, for UT. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. You're listening to Growing Up in America and uh, finishing up the Gretchen Himsel. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Anna, thank you very much for being our intern of the day right here in the studio. So I'm Bob Sanborn. Hey, we'll see you next time here on Growing Up in America. And we do this each and every day for for children. children. With a dream, my cardigan. Welcome to the land of fame, access. Am I gonna fit in? Jumped in the cab, here I am for the first time. Look to my right, and I see the Hollywood sign. This is all so crazy. Everybody seems so famous. My tummy's turning, and I'm feeling kind of homesick. Too much pressure, and I'm nervous. Cause when the taxi man turned on the
my taxi cab, everybody's looking at me now. Like, who's that chick that's rocking kicks? She gotta be from out of town. So hard with my girls on around me.